where Dave and I plan this year's company holidays. Let's go through the list. Easter, too religious. St. Patrick's Day? Too white. Mother's Day? Way too cisgendered. All of your usual holidays have been canceled this year. But we still have Karl Marx's birthday! Ha <laughs> Need a real reason to party? Find a new job at redballoon.work. Christians That Care has seen great success in Ontario and Manitoba, with several people being trained and equipped who won in the municipal elections. We're talking school board trustees, city councillors, and a mayor. And let me tell you, friends, it's a really, really good thing that they didn't let Big Eva dissuade them from cultural and political engagement. We also got to interview Jerry Boyer, economist and author of The Maker vs. The Takers, and we discussed the importance of reading the scriptures within their socioeconomic framework and why Christians ought to do better in understanding and engaging social issues. If you're a Christian and you think that that only means going to church and getting to heaven, this episode is for you. It's October 27th. I'm Andrew DiBartolo. That's Matt Halleck. And this is the Liberty Dispatch. Welcome to the Liberty Dispatch, broadcasting across enemy lines into the Canadian culture war. Wherever you're getting our content from, we ask that you would interact with that content, whether commenting, liking, subscribing, rating, and reviewing. It all helps us get our content out to more people, and we do love to hear from you, our faithful listeners. Also, you can get our content at the flfnetwork.com. That's the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. They also have a very handy app that you can get right on your phones, and you can download that from the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, and that is the FLF Network app where you can get our content on demand as well as all the various uh, podcasts on the network, whether it be from the American or the Canadian network. So we would encourage you to do that. There's tons of good content over for you at the FLF network, and we're thankful to be a part of that. Also, go over to our website, check out all things Liberty Coalition at libertycoalitioncanada.com. Com. You can check out all that we have there. You can stay in touch with us at the email uh, by signing up to our email list at the bottom of the page. But also, feel free. We would really, really appreciate it. You would help us build this institution uh, that is so needed. And you'll see why today. Um, by going up to the top of the page, clicking on that, that donation tab, and if you would, leaving a monthly dom donation, even a little bit, goes a long way. So we would really appreciate that. You can also scan the QR code at the bottom of the page for a quick way to access that donation page. So thank you so much for doing that. And also, finally, please reach out to us with any comments, questions, or concerns at info at libertycoalitioncanada.com. That's info at libertycoalitioncanada.com. Canada.com. You know, Matt, it's a little known fact that the initial rise of coffee drinking in North America was tied to the fight for liberty. Following the Boston Tea Party, American patriots saw it as their civic duty to wean themselves off of tea in order to stick it to King George and his unlawful taxes. John Adams, who would become the second president of the United States, told his wife in a letter 
tea must be universally renounced. I must be weaned, and the sooner, the better. Today, you'd never know about this connection to freedom since the coffee industry is usually associated with progressive ideologies. However, Resistance Coffee Company is bringing back the connection between coffee and liberty. That's why they give a portion of every sale to organizations fighting for the constitutional freedoms of Canadians. Resistance Coffee carefully roasts only specialty-grade coffee beans, which means you're getting the very best coffee too. Drink better coffee and support freedom at the same time. Make Resistance Coffee your drink of freedom today and go to resistancecoffee.com slash LCC. And when you use that slash, slash LCC, you'll also get 10% off your purchase. That's coffee, mugs, merch, all of it. Tell your friends, join the fight for freedom, and drink some fuel for combating tyrants and tyranny. Resistancecoffee.com slash LCC. Andrew, I'm wearing the, I'm wearing that wonderful shirt from Resistance Coffee today, and I know so many people who I've talked to who have gone over there and bought some of the Six Swag because they have some great coffee and some great merchandise that you're not going to want to miss out on. And listen, the 10% off is pretty slick, so do go over there and and use resistancecoffee.com/lcc to get all your stuff. It's definitely cool stuff. We have a wonderful update for our audience. And as many of you know, Monday was the municipal election in Ontario. Mm -hmm. And Wednesday was the municipal election in Manitoba. Indeed. And we saw a number of candidates involved with and trained by Christians That Care who won in their ridings in various positions throughout the provinces, which is phenomenal. Congratulations. Great success. Yeah. For Christians That Care, and tomorrow we will be releasing a special episode where we'll be interviewing a number of these candidates who ran throughout the province, and they're going to share a little bit about who they are, where they ran, what position, and why it is they decided to run. But suffice it to say, for our episode today, we just wanted to give you the highlights, the broad, wide-angle view as to what went down. So in the municipal elections in the province of Ontario on Monday, we saw that there were 14 candidates who were connected with Christians That Care. And again, Christians That Care, we're not affiliated with a political party. It's connected with the Liberty Coalition Canada. It's not that we particularly campaign for any candidate. That's not what we did. What we did is we offered training and equipping and support for Christians who wanted to run and engage in politics and help them build them up and support them along the way. And so we saw 14 candidates in Ontario win in their ridings who were connected with Christians That Care. That's eight school board trustees, five city councillors, and one mayor. We also saw five other wins for people who weren't connected with Christians That Care, but who were outspoken, open Christians who also ran. So if you add those two together, that's 19 people in the province of Ontario who won in their riding, who profess love for Christ and confess his lordship and his kingship over all things, including the political sphere. This is phenomenal news. This is an incredible 
victory. And this really is a great success for Christians that care. We also saw one candidate in Manitoba who won as a school board trustee. <laughs> and you might think, wow, only one. But that was 50% of yeah. the people connected with Christians that care. So technically, the Manitoba percentage was better than the Ontario percentage, even though the total number was smaller. So if we put the two of those together, that's 15 people, Christians, running and winning in local politics hoping to make a difference. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, it's it's extraordinary, man. You know, when you when we when you do initiatives like this, you know you're in it for the long haul, right? This is a vision of the future of Christian engagement in politics in Canada. It's not a, 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 an expedient uh, enterprise for the moment. That's not what we're doing. That's not the vision with Christians that care. It's to create a culture and a community and a movement that'll last for a long, long time. But to see these results in in the first and let's be honest it was pretty ad hoc we threw this together right before these municipal elections we did everything very quickly um so having in the future time to be more intentional more time for training more time for support it's only going to bear better results so to 15 people connected with ctc uh, in these three different municipal elections primarily in 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 Ontario and Manitoba it's just it is truly very exciting to be a part of and i know as someone who's a part of the the community the group there is the people are fired up we they were cheering each other on nobody was discouraged by negative results everybody understands that this is a a positive movement going in the same direction. And despite a little bit of differences, maybe on ecclesial backgrounds, denomination, stuff like that, everybody was united to fight back against the insanity of Marxist leftism that has swept over our nation and to stand on the firm principles that our country was founded on, namely the supremacy of God and the rule of higher law. So those are very encouraging signs. I'm, I'm so thankful for all the volunteers, for everybody who uh, took part in this process, even if it was just through uh, prayer and encouragement it all goes such a long way and this should be just a fire in the belly to to keep pressing forward and churches to stand up look at the results that we had from this we like i said we just threw this together last minute re realistically so in i think the the future is bright andrew i think it really is absolutely an encouraging um, time for not only people at Liberty Coalition Canada, all those who are involved with the CTC, but but Christians in Canada. This is a good start to a long, long fight. Well, I want I want to give a few takeaways here for our audience. The first one is make sure you stay tuned for tomorrow night when we release our very special episode where we will interview a number of these candidates who won and you can hear from their own mouths why they decided to run and their thoughts on it so kind of watch out for that the second thing is we're doing a rather deep dive with liberty coalition with the analysis in terms of uh for example how many votes were the people short so there were a number of people 
who ran connected with Christians at Care, who ended up finishing second in their elections. And, and in many cases, we found that it was by 50 or 100 votes. Now, why does that matter? So this is a little bit of a challenge here against you churches. Okay, I'm speaking to you here, churches and pastors who sat on the sidelines, that if you got your act together and you supported these people, they'd be in. So 100 votes, that's one small to medium-sized church. That's two small churches. That's seven large churches. So a number of you churches out there who are like, oh, what can we do? It's falling apart. Marxism is coming. What do we do? Blah, blah, blah. You know what you do next time? Next time you pay attention, you get connected with these candidates, you support them, you pray for them, and you rally your people, and you get out and you vote. Because if at least one church in each of these ridings was somewhat supportive and not either apathetic at best or in, in, and uninformed or completely cowardly and unwilling to engage socially, regardless of where you are on that spectrum, if you got out and voted, we could have seen that number doubled. And so the, the point is the win is possible. To, to say that it's a losing battle, it's Satan has it all, there's nothing we can do, throw our hands up in the air— the numbers prove that's not so, that this is a winnable battle and that we could have actually had even more people had you had you gotten your act together. So churches, smarten up for the next election. Look and see. We can do this. Absolutely. And the, the fact of the matter, we covered it on our last program. The, the Marxists, the legacy media, those leftists who are so actively engaged, right, because this is their church. This is their church life. This is the praxis that they have to go through as good Marxist leftists is getting involved in the political process. They're noticing that we're standing up and we're pushing back and we're fighting back. So they understand that the greatest threat to their Marxist socialistic utopia is the church of Jesus Christ waking up from its dogmatic slumber and getting involved. So let's yep. take them. They understand it. Let's start understanding it ourselves and let's do the one thing that they fear and that's get involved. So uh, man, I'm just, and so that was the third point. The third yeah. point was C CPC <laughs> CTV. Yeah. Thank you for the hit pieces. They didn't work. Keep them coming. <laughs> you didn't accomplish your ends. And I'm telling you right now, I, none of them are watching this. Mm -hmm. I hope they do. Legacy media, Marxist, radical, sexual, gender people, this cultural behemoth, we're coming for mm -hmm. you. You're Egypt. We're mm -hmm. going to plunder your goods. Yeah. You have to understand this. We're not... We are storming the gates. Who are these uncircumcised Philistines? Yeah. <laughs> We're not sitting back, man. We are coming yeah. for you. We are going to plunder your gold and your silver, and we are going to press the kingdom of God. And you can call us Christian nationalists. Fine. I love it. I'll take yeah. it. You can call me far right. What You throw whatever you want at us. We are taking ground for Christ. Period. Deal with it. So just keep, keep writing hit pieces yeah. on us. Our interview with Jerry Boyer is sponsored by our friends over at Bull Bitcoin. You might be surprised to know that our federal government's response to economic difficulties is to print money until it's worthless, driving up the cost of everything. I don't know if you've noticed milk has gone up by about $1.20 and eggs have basically doubled in price. It's mad. And what this does by increasing the price of everything and causing inflation is it essentially steals from you and your hard-earned pay. 
They also want to monitor your spending by way of centralized digital currency, and they want to control you by way of a digital ID. What you need, however, is to take control of your own resources and be responsible for your own money, which is your responsibility, and that comes with your freedoms and rights. Bull Bitcoin wants to help you do just that. Bull Bitcoin is a 100% self-funded, freedom-minded Canadian Bitcoin exchange that wants to protect your financial freedom and help you protect your resources. If you're at all aware of what's going on in our country, you should seriously consider connecting with my friends at Bull Bitcoin and buying at least some Bitcoin today. Sign up at mission.bullbitcoin.com LCC and have all of your questions answered. Bull Bitcoin is the exchange that I personally use and trust for all of my Bitcoin purchases. That's mission.bullbitcoin.com slash LCC. Andrew, on the topic of economics, we have a wonderful guest who is joining us on the program today. As you mentioned at the top of the program, his name is Jerry Boyer, and Jerry Boyer has had a distinguished career. He's been in media. He's a columnist. He's the author of The Maker vs. The Takers, which I cannot highly recommend this book enough to people to have a truly biblical understanding of economics and also understand Jesus's pointed teaching on the subject. So you definitely want to get that book. He's he's just a, a very interesting man, very interesting thinker, and he has expertise in a bunch of different areas. I know you're going to be blessed by this conversation that we're going to have with uh, author, economist, and theologian Jerry Boyer. We are pleased to have with us on the dispatch, Jerry Boyer. Jerry Boyer is an economist. He is the president and founder of Boyer Research, author of The Makers versus the Takers, and host of the Meaning of Minds podcast. Jerry Matt has been excited and tingly and dancing and giddy uh, at the prospect of this interview and having you on us, having you on the dispatch with us. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Andrew. Great to be with you. Now, is it Matt or Matthew? Because <laughs> we keep using this seems different... to be an ongoing or diminutive versus formal seems to be an ongoing dispute here at the Dispatch. I I well, don't care either way. Andy yeah, has he's more. my ginger. He's he's my ginger in crime. Yeah. Um, I so, see. I mean, that's 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 the most formal title I could give him. I see. Yeah. Ginger in crime. Yeah. Absolutely. So you're a real ginger, right? I mean, you're not like a trans ginger or something like that. Well, I mean, this is, you didn't bot, dye yourself red. You're no, the real deal. It, you know, it, it kind of depends who you ask, because in certain lights it looks a lot. Transgender, right? Transgenderism. That's transgenderism. Good. You know, someone who's a brunette or whatever, and they <laughs> dye their beard red. Man, we're already the off the rails. Credits. We're already is off the rails. Is, is transgender is transgenderism the process by which vanilla cookies become snickerdoodle cookies? Uh, apparently. Is yes. that what transgenderism is? Okay. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Oh my word. Okay. Andrew, you got to put us back on the tracks here. I'll try. <laughs> uh, Jerry, tell us a little bit about what got you interested initially in getting involved in economics, what is it that drove you into that particular area, that discipline or that industry? Oh, I've been interested in economics for 
quite a long time, back as early as my late teens, which is some time ago, uh, you know, more than 40 years ago. Um, I think it's because as a teenager, I was a Marxist, um, which is an economic philosophy and also a metaphysical uh, philosophy. So when I converted to Christianity, then, you know, what does that bring an economic change along with it? Right. Um, and I, th I thought that it did. So I got very interested in reading stuff that I hadn't heard of before. Before that, I'd read some Marx and I'd read a lot of um, the Frankfurt School people and a lot of uh, Fabian socialists um, for fam familiar reasons. Uh, my role model was my grandfather and he was into that stuff. But then later on, converting to Christianity and being discipled, uh, I also had thrown at me a lot of books by Austrian economists. So that starts basically around age 19 or 20, and I've been plugging away at that ever since. Absolutely. And, and all that research, the decades of you know studying economics and being involved in it has led to a career in that space. And also, it has led you to write a book called The Makers Versus the Takers. And it's really a book where I think you do a masterful job of just dealing with basic uh, fundamental economic insights and kind of Jesus's view on economics. And you have some very profound central insights in that book, Jerry. I, I was blessed Thank to you. go through it. And one of those central insights cut me to the core because it exposed my folly and uh, my lack of paying attention to the text of scripture. And you make a very simple point, and maybe this will lead into uh, the question that I ask, is you say, when we're reading scripture, quite often we don't read it as though every word and every detail is there for a purpose. And that insight has led you to uh, really the central insight of makers versus takers, where if we examine how Jesus talks about economics, understanding the cultural context and who he's speaking to is central in understanding his view of economics. So can you flesh that out a little bit for our listeners and why that's so important for us to understand if we want to really have a biblical view of economics? Well, because Jesus is God incarnate. Um, and if he's incarnate, he's incarnate in a certain place. Um, and I think sometimes there's a tendency for Orthodox, small o, Orthodox Christians to formally assent to the doctrine of the incarnation. You know, the homo factos est, he was made man, um, pro nobis for us, but not actually act like the incarnation is true. Because in essence, I think what we do is we act as though God, the maker, that's why the book is the maker versus the takers. God is the maker, and on earth, as he's incarnate, he's in conflict with takers. Um, the, we kind of think of the maker as incarnating human nature in general. Like God becomes man. Well, sure, God becomes man, but he doesn't become man in general. He becomes a specific man in a specific place. So then there's all these versions of, uh, you know, Apollarian, Apollarianism, et cetera, like, oh, well, God, um, you know, was the, was the mind of Jesus, but the body was human, but the mind was divine, right? Which isn't really full incarnation doctrine. But there's other riffs on that, like, well, he is, he's, he's incarnate, um, and what that means is he's incarnate as a religious thinker or as a rabbi. 
but the incarnation doesn't really count the, the what he was doing with his hands or his feet. You know, that's kind of beside the point. If he's fully incarnate, you, you know, you you are as a human being, you're in a context. You're not just standing out there alone. You're in a family. You're in a specific uh, locale. You occupy a class and a place in the economy. And who you are as a person is all of those things. But I think we act like, well, Jesus just became a person. Um, and his incarnation doesn't have anything to do with Nazareth, Galilee, um, Carpenter, Tecton, Galilean, Jew, Israelite, Mediterranean. It doesn't have anything to do with any of that stuff. Um, so we, so th that it doesn't matter. He could as easily have been dropped in China, and it would be the same thing. Now, that's not right. The, the Bible is very clear that his incarnation, that the, the decisions that God the Father is making about his incarnation are about not just that he would be a human being, but that he would be a Nazarene, Nazarene, a Galilean, um, that he would be of a certain class and of a certain occupation, uh, that he would be despised among men, all of that, he would he would have a certain status level, which would not be an optimal status level. All of that stuff is part of the incarnation, but we don't really act that way. And so what we do is when we read the gospel accounts, we read everything but the things he says um, as extraneous material, filler, styrofoam, that the gospel stories are a box, and in that box is mostly styrofoam. And then in that styrofoam were embedded little useful things, like a sermon that he gives or a parable that he tells. And then the, and then the um, accounts at the end, uh, the passion accounts. But the rest of it could really, you could take that out and throw that out, out of the box and you wouldn't really lose anything. But when you don't, but that's, that's, that's anti-incarnational. It's a deep theological habit for the church historically. Now, I don't blame the church for this being a historical uh, habit because up until recently, we didn't know any of that stuff. I mean, essentially, biblical archaeology is 100 years old at most. And almost all of the biblical archaeology up until about 1980 was Judea, not Galilee. So we didn't we really didn't know anything about Bethsaida, Nazareth, Sepphoris, um, uh, uh, Tiberius, the rest of them. We didn't have the biblical archaeology, and it wasn't part of the normal Christian toolkit to have Josephus, the Jewish historian of the time, um, or Philo, another Jewish historian of the time. Now, there were Roman historians who gave us some of this context, but they were studied in the classics department, not in the theology department. So we had a Jesus who's kind of incarnate, but he's essentially walking six feet above the earth. His feet don't really touch the dusty sand, and his hands don't really touch nails, except in the in the crucifixion accounts or hammers. Once you full, once you deal with all of the biblical material, then you're putting him in a historic context, which includes an economic context. And once you do that, aspects of the text come alive that were previously um, not live to us because we didn't. We didn't have the inclination to to you know understand the economic context of Bethsaida versus Bethany versus Nazareth versus Judea versus Jerusalem, um, and you know, we theologians just weren't thinking in those terms, um, and they didn't have the obvious they just they didn't have the knowledge.
Like up, basically up until 30 years ago, almost all Bible scholars thought that Galilee was really poor. Turns out when you dig it up, it's not. But they didn't know that. And it, it fit a certain ideological preconception for a lot of academic theologians for him to be really poor, because if he's really poor, then he can be leading a peasant's revolt and he can be a little bit like the Sandinistas or Che Guevara. Um, the problem is in the material remains, the actual, you know, we actually look at the houses, you know, we, we didn't have a poor, there wasn't a poor class, wasn't a poor region. Yeah, so maybe can you flesh out some of those central ice? Uh, like you talked about the importance of understanding Jesus as in the incarnate word in history and how that helps us understand like proper biblical hermeneutics as it pertains to his teaching. So what are some of those differences between Galilee, like you said, and Judea that really highlight and illuminate, as you've talked about, some of the teachings of Christ and his economic uh, understanding and even even some of the teachings of his mother Mary as well. Well, Galilee was um, lower tax. Um, the Galilee did not have the Roman tax, the tribute tax, whereas Judea did. Judea was punished with the tribute tax. By the way, that stands as important background when Jesus is confronted about paying taxes to Caesar by Judean authorities there's a geographical backdrop here. Hey, Jesus, you're from one of those tax revolt towns up north. You don't pay this tax, right? So should we pay taxes to Caesar? They had more, they had reason maybe to believe that given his geographical proximity that he would object more to the, to the tribute tax than he turned out doing so. Uh, so they didn't have the tribute tax. Uh, the tribute tax, so that's a, that's a tax which was an imposition on growth. Um, it seemed to be more dynamic. It's a newer economy. Judea was to some degree um, a um, ossified economy. Its best days were behind it, um, whereas Galilee was up and coming. You, it, there were more settlers there. We didn't have 200 years of Jews in Galilee. We had maybe 50 you know, years of Jews you know, coming up from Judea basically conservative Pharisees who were out of favor politically, moving away from the capital city, uh, you know, um, to the frontier zone of Galilee, which was largely Gentile. So more frontiersy, more dynamic, flatter in terms of the social hierarchy. Um, and so Judea is essentially, you know, the, the great city of Judea is Jerusalem. In fact, sometimes um, Jerusalem is just known as Cariot, the city, right? Uh, so sometimes you would call it Jerusalem, and sometimes you would just call it the city, because it was the great city of Judea, and it was a company town, and the company was the temple. So, you know, Washington, D.C. is a company town, and the company is the federal government. There are different company towns, you know, Pittsburgh, where I'm from, was known as a steel town, right? And Silicon Valley, you know, is that sort of the, the Bay Area. So there's different places that have different industries they're associated with. Well, Judea was absolutely dominated by Jerusalem, which was absolutely dominated by the temple economy, which was essentially part of the government. You didn't have that same situation in Galilee. You had a lot of villages. You had Sepphoris, which was a market center, and you had Tiberias, which was a market center. Uh, but you had a flatter hierarchy. And the archeological remains are that in a lot of Galilean villages, it's extremely common when you dig them up, you find three or four shops. So the economy of, of Galilee was more diversified. Like Bet Bethsaida and Capernaum over there by 
by the Sea of Galilee are, that's the fishing industry. Not subsistence fishing, but fishing, fish, more than you eat, you ferment it, or you dry it with salt, and then you export it. And even exporting fish hooks, industrial produced fish hooks, etc. So that's that industry. Okay, so then you have um, places that are largely industrial stoneware. The growing business was stoneware, and we can get into why. It had to do with contact with Gentiles. Um, so we see that in the wedding, in the account of the wedding at Cana. Uh, Nazareth, farming olive oil to a large degree. Um, near to Sepphoris, really an excerpt of Sepphoris, which was a market center. It's a big meeting place, an entrepot where people would come and trade all sorts of different things. And it looks like a financial center. So you had a lot of different economies going. You had industrial, you had um, agricultural, you had aquacultural. Uh, and you're sure you had government, um, but not as much. And every confrontation Jesus has over wealth, he has in Judea, not Galilee. Zero confrontations over wealth in Galilee, 100% of the confrontations over wealth happen in Judea, and 100% of them, um, which are directly with an individual, happen with somebody who is a man of the state, either the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus the tax collector, or the money changers, who were all possessors of some kind of government monopoly. One of the things that I have found interesting as a preacher, we worked through John's Gospel um, last year. We took about a year and a half to go through John's Gospel. And there are various parts of the story where you touch down, where, like you said, there are details that are otherwise thrown away that give insight not only to the story, not only to the ministry of Christ, but really what John is seeking to communicate. These Gospel writers were intentional, and they didn't Oh, you know, they, they would include details, not for fun. And so you already mentioned the wedding at Cana in Galilee. You know, one of the things we saw, one of the insights that was drawn from the text was the wedding itself was clearly a large-scale wealthy wedding, given the amount of wine and the way that it's described. And the fact that Mary is the one who seems to be concerned with what's happening, and then the fact that she tasks Jesus with doing something about it, these details that are seemingly irrelevant reveal the fact that this might have been a family wedding. It also reveals the fact that Mary probably in her ancestor, there's a little bit of money there because she's the one who's met, she's the one who's responsible for what to do with the wine and her response to Jesus. So these details aren't right. irrelevant. There's another one that comes to mind is when, um, when Lazarus dies and then the funeral that they have. The, the, the expression of all these people came from miles away from Jerusalem to come to this funeral and the massive party of people, the singers and the trumpet players and the flute players, all this was going on, lends to the fact these, the, you know, Lazarus's two sisters, tremendous wealth. The fact that it might have been one of these two sisters again is the one who breaks the ointment jar and then rubs it over Jesus' feet and we see the cost of it. They probably also came from wealth. This is probably a very priceless heirloom worth tens of thousands of dollars. So all these details, like you said, draw, really understanding the, the styrofoam, as you put it, right. give a deeper sense. They enrich our understanding of the text. So one of the questions, I, those are two that just came to the top of my mind as we were working through the text and wanting to be intentional. Um, what would be maybe one or two the main uh, that, that you think the insights the understandings, the appreciation that help us interpret the text more clearly when we pay attention to 
some of these details that seem irrelevant, but really when we ground them historically and contextually, these insights give us tremendous understanding and appreciation as to what the text actually means and what it is that's being communicated. Is there one, you know, one or two that really at the top of your list that these little bits of context here really enliven and really brighten up the text in a unique way? Well, there's there's maybe two or three that I that are really key in on the book, but let me stick with yours for a moment, which I didn't write about in the book, which is the wedding at Cana. Um, so you're right, it's a big wedding, right? There's an architriclinon, there's a master of ceremonies of the wedding. Um, but let's put, but so this is one of these deals where we can go into historical context. A great deal is made out of these stone jars um, and that's skim over material. They've got stone jars for what? For the purification of the Jews or maybe more literally the purity of the Jews. Well, what do the stone jars have to do with the purity of the Jews? Right? I mean, would they not be pure if there weren't stone jars? Well, because Galilee was a kind of free trade zone and economically entrepreneurial and dynamic, you had a lot of Jews bumping up against Gentiles. So there was a strong amount of concern about cleanliness. So you don't have fights in the South about cleanliness. You have fights in the North about cleanliness. Right, so you have a lot. So you have a lot of that, like, oh, you, your disciples don't wash their hands because they're deep, they're mixing with Gentiles all the time. So uh, in Leviticus, I think it's chapter eleven, and then later on, this appears in the rabbis that if you have a cup and it's made of wood, the uncleanness goes from outside. It, it, the, the uncleanness penetrates the the wooden cup or a chalk cup because it's porous, but uncleanness does not pass through a stone jar. So if you have an unclean influence, you have to destroy the cup, except if it's stone. So stone jars maintained ritual purity better. So there was an entrepreneurial startup. Hey, you know, Orthodox Jews, hey, Pharisees, you're up here in the north. You're doing a lot of business. You're making good money, but you're bumping up against unclean Gentiles all the time. We've got a brand new app for you here. We've got a new technology. It's the cups and the jars are made out of stone. If, uh, if there's a dead mouse or you're in contact with Gentiles in a certain way, you don't have to, you don't have, you just have to wash it. You don't have to destroy it. So it was a booming industry. All right. So that's a, that's a historical context here. So this, right from the beginning, this is a story about ritual purity and separation. So then you're asking for the, like the little detail. So this is like super careful reading. Jesus turns the water into wine, right? When does the water become wine? That's it. And you got to read the text over and over again, because we know that the water becomes wine and the text actually tells us when the water becomes wine, but it's not clear. Um, and I've never heard anyone preach on it. Well, when the, you know, what John says is that the helpers, deacons, they drew water from the, from, the, from the stone jar and they poured wine. So it doesn't become wine in the stone jar. I think this is extremely important. I think that this is a, remember, this isn't just called a miracle. This is a semeon, a sign. 
In other words, it's not a magic trick. It's not, you know, he could have done something else. He could have pulled a rabbit from his hat. He could have made, you know, a lady disappear. It just like, it's not just, hey, here's a supernatural thing happening. The actual, this actual intellectual content to the nature of the miracle. And the intellectual content is, the story is, you will not be turned into wine until you get out of your purity preoccupation. And until you're poor, if you are up there isolated from the Gentiles, obsessed with being separated from them, you won't be wine. You won't be the wine of the kingdom. The marriage ceremony of the Messiah cannot occur until you're poured out of your safety, purity, separation zone. So um, that to me is something, if you don't know why there's stone jars there, why, you know, as opposed to other kinds of jars, you're going to kind of miss that dimension to it. So um, the Lazarus thing is interesting because it's kind of complicated because Bethany was a very poor town. Bethany literally means poor town. Now, Mary, Martha, Lazarus might have been wealthy people in the poor town because you can have that, or they might have been highly favored in some ways. Um, and the, the, the issue with the, with the jar of nard could be wealthiness of one form, prestigious, or it could be prostitute wealthiness, right? Um, so it could be low class. So you had people who were of low class who had wealth, tax collectors and prostitutes had wealth, but they were not of, they were not of wealth status. Um, so I'll just stop there because I, I, I mean, there's other stuff I talk about in the book, largely the rich, really the book is about the rich young ruler, uh, Zacchaeus the tax collector and the, um, and the, the money changers mainly. Can can you then touch on why why understanding that historical, geographic, economic context of those those stories that happen in scripture is so valuable on in unlocking those insights? Because you've already talked about, you know, you grew up as a Marxist. So many Marxists and liberation theologians have tried to basically turn um, Jesus into a socialist figure, but I think that's important of your book is some people even just looking at the title, right? The maker versus the takers, you know, that's, that sounds like, um, you know, the bourgeois versus the proletariat, but that's a misunderstanding when we really, really understand these central insights, it really paints a very powerful economic picture for us. So maybe you can take us through those as best you can. Uh, you don't have to give yeah. away the farm. I would suggest everybody get the book. It's a, it's really, really a great, valuable resource. But maybe just help us uh, kind of unpack some of those insights that you made. Yeah, the maker versus the takers could, could definitely be. In fact, I think there's a book about makers and takers, which is written by someone left of center who says that finance are takers and, you know, industrial workers are makers. Um, financial people can be takers if they're using government power rather than, you know, using market operations. Um, and the other thing that drives people crazy is my reference to social justice because social justice, and you know, my, pro my problem with the conservative conversation is that you, the, the liberation theologians have a political and economic Jesus. We respond to that with a Jesus who doesn't care one whit about those things, uh, with, a, with a Jesus who's merely religious because we're so afraid of, of Marxist Jesus that we want essentially to shut up historical Jesus just in case he sounds a little too socialist for us. Um, and so most of the conservative commentary that I hear about the gospels is Jesus said, help the poor, but he didn't say, 
use government. Well, I'm sorry, but he didn't say is a pretty weak form of exegesis. Um, or Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler, and the reason he said that to the rich young ruler is because that man had a dysfunctional greed relationship with, with money in his heart, and that's why, so it's only for people like that. Well, the text says nothing about that. The text doesn't say a single thing about Jesus seeing into his heart, and the gospel accounts will do that. The gospel account said he knew what they were murmuring about, or he discerned what they were thinking when he's doing that. So we keep trying to depoliticize Jesus because we don't want anything that sounds like liberation theology. But we're not allowed to tell Jesus in advance what he's allowed to talk about. We just have to listen. Um, and in some sense, we, we do get a liberation theology. We get a liberating theology, liberating from the power of the omnicompetent state. A Jesus who liberates us from statism. Um, but in, but you have to have but he, then he, you have to let him be political. But why wouldn't he be political? He's prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, king. At least two of those are extremely political. Kings are political by very nature. Um, prophets are what comes along when kings turn bad and somebody needs to confront the bad kings. So prophets are constantly talking about debasement of currency and, you know, exploitation of the poor. So why would we think, is Jesus less than a prophet? Is he like a half prophet? He's a prophet and he only talks about the religious prophet stuff, not the social prophet stuff. No, he's, you know, he's, he's king, he's prophet, and he's priest. He's all of those things. So of course he would talk about those things. And he does uh, if we let him. Um, and so when you're looking at, this, at the account of the rich young ruler and you skip over the fact that he's a ruler, you're going to get that story terribly wrong. He's, I've heard pastors refer to, um, or people refer to sermons they've heard where they describe this as being like Bill Gates, like a rich young tech executive. There weren't any rich young entrepreneurs in Judean society. There was no quick way to the top. If he's a rich young ruler, He's a senator, a Sanhedrin member who inherited his daddy's Sanhedrin seat. Nobody was up there, you know, creating new apps for growing olives and becoming suddenly wealthy or something like that. That's not the kind of society that they lived in. Do you think, so, sorry, just interject quickly. Do you go, go. think that the rich young ruler, I've, I've heard the case that people will try, people try to make the case that that's the un, unnamed Joseph of Arimathea, who later on we see, like, like Nicodemus, finally gets it toward the end of his life and that Joseph of Arimathea seems to fit that bill, a member of the Sanhedrin, very wealthy. I don't know if you've heard that before. I mean, obviously it is not I, the place I to- have. I have. I doubt it for a couple of reasons. Um, one, um, Joseph of Arimathea seems to be an older man, um, an established man. I, that's the, at least that's what the historians say. So. He can't get he can't get old in three years, right? So Jesus didn't have a long ministry. You, have, uh, you but, haven't lived through COVID, have you? You get very <laughs> old in three years. I see. And they did have a plague at the time, which was um, malaria. Um, so they had their own plague to deal with, their own uh, uh, pandemic. But um, yeah, back to the text. The other thing is Joseph of Arimathea seems to have been an honest man. He was, according to history, a tin merchant, and he's presented positively throughout the gospel accounts, but the rich young ruler is presented as corrupt from the beginning. Um, and I'll tell you why, again, cl close reading of the text. When, when Jesus is listing the commandments from the 10 commandments, he adds one, do not defraud. 
Um, so I think that's a point, that's a pretty strong point. I mean, unless Jesus is confusing his Ten Commandments, which I'm going to make the assumption that he memorized them correctly, he's saying don't steal, he's saying don't um, bear false witness, and he's also saying um, don't commit fraud, uh, don't um Well, why is he saying that? Why is he adding a commandment? Because that's the commandment the man was breaking. Um, because that was endemic to the Sanhedrin class, which is probably why Jesus's either brother James or disciple James later on, writing from Jerusalem, writing about the ruling class of the Sanhedrin, says, do not rich men defraud you using the same word in Greek. And it only appears in the New Testament twice. The, the confrontation with the rich young ruler and um, in uh, G and James's confrontation later with the ruling class. So I think Jesus is implying pretty strongly that he was defrauding and, and he would have, that would have been sort of the, uh, the default position. So I think that's the, that's what the confrontation is about. It's about the, the, about fraud about, and also in the, in the, in the histories, we see that that's how these members were largely, not every Sanhedrin member was a crook, just almost every Sanhedrin member was a crook. So it was a reasonable default position. So I think that's what's going on there um, is a confrontation over extraction, over the use of political power to extract wealth from other people. And there's other hints in the text, like the references to treasures in heaven, which is Thessaurus, and the treasure room in the temple was called the Thessaurus. Um, so there's a contrast with the treasure room in the heavenly temple and the treasure room where Sanhedrin members kept their ill-gotten gain in the temple. So I think there's lots of reasons to believe that this um, man is living at the expense of other people. And by the way, one other thing, really fascinating, you know who notices this first are the early copyists of the New Testament. So what happens is in the best manuscripts, you do not defraud is there. But in the manuscripts after, do not defraud is dropped from the manuscript. And you can see what's happening is close readers are saying, oh, this is probably a mistake. Jesus probably didn't say do not defraud because it, that's not part of the Ten Commandments. So the editors edit it out as a probable mistake rather than stopping and thinking, wait a minute, what? if this doesn't look right to me, I'm not going to assume the manuscript is wrong. I should dig deeper into myself and find out what my economic presuppositions are so that it makes sense to me. And that would have led, you know, eventually to the idea, oh, Jesus is throwing in this extra commandment because that's the commandment the man is breaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And those are the f valuable insights in the book. I just want to read a little bit of a quote from the book because I think it will help us transition. I did. You've talked a lot about um, ESG. Um, environmental, social, social and governance, um, and that kind of eco and economic stakeholder capitalism and how we should push back on it. And I think some, like uh, a lot of what you point out as Christ directing his barbs to a specific people, I think comes out in what's actually going on in our actual real lives in our daily lives today. So I just want to read, th this is what you write. The denunciations of wealth correlate both with geographic proximity to Jerusalem and 
social proximity to the ruling class. Jesus is tough on the rich and politically connected Judea, and when in Judea, toughest on the politically connected wealthy people. Those who are members of religious and politically and political elites, typically the same people, who live off extracted wealth. Those who do not receive his verbal ire are those who created wealth through labor, commerce, or even investment. So how can this central insight really impact our daily lives and then even apply to what we're seeing going on in this ESG score system where you have this private-public partnership of global elites that are trying to kind of foist us down this transition in in our economy uh, here, Jerry. How can how can we make sense of this and apply these principles and these insights into what's actually taking place in our current day? Well, I think a good example uh, would be to the degree that government is propping up an ailing ESG bubble. Um, I mean, ESG comes from the United Nations, basically. So it comes from the state, a super state in the form of sustainable investing, a socially responsible investing. It comes into the marketplace and big institutions start shoving it down the throat of advisors and clients. And for the most part, clients are uninterested except state sponsored clients. So pension plans of largely blue states are the big clients of ESG and sovereign wealth funds. So it's the, so politics is propping it up. In that sense, it's extractive. To the degree that ESG imposes on um, a an investment methodology, you know. So pick your method. If you think like that, if you're a value, if you have a valuation discipline, if you think buying things when they have low PEs will get you better returns over the long run, a reasonable you know proposition. I'm not here to argue for any particular investment philosophy, but that's a reasonable proposition. And then you come along and say, except even if something has a really low PE, we're going to throw it out of the portfolio because it's not socially responsible or Christian version, because it's a sin stock, we're gonna throw it out of the portfolio. You are putting a political criterion in place of an income generating criterion. And therefore you are harming the people who are the retirees and benefiting the asset gatherers and managers who get to charge extra basis points for imposing their conscience on you. So there's a left version, which is ESG, and there's a kind of right version, two right versions. One is the religious one, sin-screen investing. You know, can't invest in Apple because you can download porn on your iPhone. You know, therefore, it's, it's, like, it's like you got to stay in the stone jar, you know, otherwise you'll be impure. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, you know, various versions of this. Um, uh, so, may, but the, the real power and the real wealth is in the regular ESG. And I think, that first of all, it's an instrument of social control. It's failing. It it's now has a bad reputation. So now the SEC has to come along and say, you "Got to disclose this. Got to disclose that." We're gonna, have, we're, you know, or um, the S, you know, the um, the rating agencies are now starting to give ESG scores to states. Now these rating agencies has go have government granted, you know, near duopolies, etc. Um, so this is the imposition of politics, and it is extractive. It transfers wealth from retirees to asset gatherers 
uh, to the essentially the managerial class. So I think that would be a pretty good example. And people were doing it. Uh, that's what the Pharisees were doing in you know Jesus's time. They loved money, and they were coming along and saying, "Well, you were out in the marketplace, so you're probably unclean. But you know, I just I can just do a little of this and a little of that, and I can consult with you on this, and I can give you this kind of bath or whatever, and I can get rid of your impureness. It'll cost you, but isn't it worth it not to be unclean?" Um, and so it's it's a pretty similar it's a pretty similar philosophy, really. Just you know, um, two thousand years later. So how should how should Christians? I mean, we one of the things we've seen in the last two and a half years is that when it comes to issues of cultural engagement, understanding what's happening in the broader society, thinking about politics, thinking about economics, Christians have been very poorly trained whether this is because of a lack of discipleship in their own churches, because their pastors have been churned out of a seminary system that deals in the high level of the academic, abstract, theological, but not actual practical pastoral implications. And so we're churning out, we're churning out people that sit up atop ivory towers that don't actually know what it is to live the everyday life and to engage in the world. So seminaries have, have churned out people who who do, do a terrible job of discipling their people to understand what's happening in the culture society politics economics so i'm 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 joe christian and i have i work and i make money and i odd you know the often time i'll check out a podcast or read an article on some sort of news website i'm trying to gauge what's going on in the world so as a christian with my money trying to understand economics What's something that I need to be thinking about? Where's you know whether it's a particular source or something? How should we go about, or what would be the things that people need to begin to think about, or how they need to engage, so that Christians primarily can start training their minds to think the way that we're talking, to try to hmm. see not only the undertones but to think well politically, economically. What? What do we tell people? How do we counsel them? How do we disciple them in the right direction? Well, it's it's really hard because the conversation has been so limited up until now. Um, I didn't have any intention of writing a book. Um, I just wanted to understand what Jesus was saying about economics. But the reason I was willing to write a book is because I wasn't satisfied with the books that were out there already. I wouldn't have... Look, this is not my day job. Writing a book is a sub-minimum wage job. Um, and I sold, my hardcover sold out, and it's still a sub-minimum wage job. Um, so it is a, it, takes, it, take, it took time and energy away from much higher income-producing activities for me. But I felt like it was needed because I found the, the liberal stuff was complete dreck, you know, the, you know the, the Jesus, the hippie Jesus, the revolutionary, the Sandinista Jesus. But the conservative or libertarian stuff, I was really oh, just really disappointed with it because it wasn't really letting the text speak very much. It was, again, spiritualizing it away or individualizing it away or argument from silence. You know, so William F. Buckley famously, when someone would quote the Sermon on the Mount to him, he would say, well, well, we'll follow that when the kingdom of God comes, when the kingdom of God is among us. Well, Bill, the kingdom of God is among us, and the God, Jesus says it's here. So the Sermon on the Mount doesn't wait until the second coming. 
Now, maybe you've misunderstood the Sermon on the Mount, and you maybe you think it's a little more Gandhi than it is, as opposed to very practical Galilean peasant wisdom, but it's real. The New Testament applies already, and it has a social dimension to it. So I don't have a lot to point you to. I'm sorry. I mean, it would be egotistical to say, well, read my book. Um, so <laughs> I'll say that. I'll say that. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I can tell you that I learned things from other places, but you do have to pull them together. Mm-hmm. Right. So I found like anything about the archaeology of um, Galilee, anything by David Finnessy, for instance, F-I-E-N-S-Y, very helpful. He has, he has a two volume thing from Fortress about the archaeology of Galilee, and he has a shorter book. That was that was very helpful to me. And I, I give him credit reading Josephus. But again, reading these detailed archaeological reports from Joe Christian, that's not going to be easy. Right. Mm-hmm. Or reading Flavius Josephus. Um, that's not going to be easy, but it gives you an idea of what's going on economically. So, you know, this is just starting. So I, I want other people to, like, take some of my insights and keep going with them. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe I need to keep writing because I didn't write about the I didn't write about the, the stone jars, but that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Or the confrontation with the Syrophoenician woman and the conversation about dogs. A lot of economics going on there. The Bible's drenched with it. Mm-hmm. So I'd say if you really want to know do read my book. And then once that's shifted in your mind, then go back and read the Gospels. And I'm not saying read the Gospels as though Jerry is right. I'm saying read the Gospels with taking off a blinder. Mm-hmm. Read the Gospels with permission to see economics. So I'm not here saying I'm telling you how to read the Gospels. What I'm saying is your whole life there's been a little policeman in your head that says, when you read the Gospels, make sure you stick to theology mm-hmm. or maybe personal piety and maybe a little bit of family life. Mm-hmm. And and then if it starts to seem too political, no, no, <laughs> don't. Yeah. So just I'm saying tear up that boundary stone. That was a false boundary mm-hmm. stone. Let Jesus be as political and social and economic as his actual words imply. And all my book really does is essentially gives people permission to do, to do that. It gives them permission to hear all of the Jesus, mm-hmm. not just the Jesus that the technical academic theologians have allowed us mm-hmm. to hear. And I think once they do that, they're going to see all sorts of things that I haven't seen. Um, and, there, and there'll be a conversation. I don't know. I've wondered, does there need to be something like some Galilean society or something <laughs> where the Galileans of the earth, Christians who believe in a decentralized order, just start sharing ideas and being mm-hmm. in solidarity with one another? Because when Jesus starts the church, he starts a Galilean-style church. The structure of the church is peer-to-peer. Mm-hmm. It's small groups. Someone does something wrong, you talk to them. You take one other person. It's not a top-down system. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- we keep creating top-down systems, and we're surprised when our top-down ecclesiastical systems keep coming to the conclusion of top-down economic systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. I, I, I don't really have a good answer <laughs> for you um, because I think this is just getting started. And it's, it's okay that it is. Again, nobody was digging up Galilee before 1980. We didn't know any of, that, mm-hmm. any of this stuff. So mm-hmm. it's going to take time for the, for the church to digest the enormous amounts. You know, but look. You know, in, in the high Middle Ages and around the time of the Reformation, for the first time, the West got copies of the Greek text of the New Testament. Brand new information. And we spend like 200 years absorbing it. Not long after that, we get, we get texts of the, because of the Jews fleeing from Spain, we get Hebrew texts up there, you know, in Amsterdam. 
it takes a century to absorb all that new information. Okay, we've got another treasure trove now. We've got biblical archaeology. We're going to have to adjust a lot of our exegesis to account for the new information, and that's just going to take time. Yeah, well, I'm I'm thankful that you came on and helped us kind of unpack some of those um, insights that you have in the book um, to start this ongoing conversation, because that's a lot of what we want to do at the Liberty Coalition Canada, is talk about these things, take theology out of the ivory tower and understand that it applies to all of life and that scripture is the sole infallible rule for faith and practice, and that mm-hmm. economics isn't something ethereal either. It's not something out there. It literally is human action and the understanding of human action which ties to the um, dominion mandate and all these things come from scripture and if we understand them correctly we can start to understand how we ought to live and move and have our being in 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 the world that God's placed us in and that's what we want to talk about when we talk about principles of economics and help us think biblically about these things because I think like you said Jerry multiple times there's so many misconceptions and misunderstandings so again I if Jerry's not going to say it for you I want to say it Go out, get the makers versus the takers, whether in physical copy or on Kindle or whatever you have. It will be a valuable resource for you to go over. It's not a huge, dense, long book. It's very digestible, and it's packed with, like, I think for page per count plus insights, it's packed full of them. So I really appreciate you, Jerry, writing the book, um, taking time out of your busy schedule to do that, and also to come on the program and talk to us about it. And we pray that hopefully this will just be the beginning of a much larger conversation that Christians are having, uh, not in Canada, not just in Canada or America, but across the globe about what does biblical economics look like? What does the lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life really mean for how we live our lives on the daily? So, Jerry, thanks again for tu- er, for coming. Uh, Lord, hear our prayer. Oh, yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the program, and we uh, wish you Godspeed. Jerry, Godspeed where can people well. find you? Where can they oh, find yes. you? Where can they connect <laughs> with you? Uh, website, well, social they, media. Where, where can where can people go to find you and your work? I, uh, I'm I'm probably easiest. To, I don't have like a branded website. I mainly it's just social media. So if you remember, there's a W B O W Y E R. LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, I write for Christian Post. Um, um, or, or my podcast, Meaning of Minds, uh, with Jerry Boyer. Um, which you can find that on YouTube. It's on Salem Podcast. It's on all the podcast distribute distributors. Um, so um, that's another for the more long form conversation that's a good place to go excellent well thanks again sir and godspeed in all your ministries and to you matt as we come out of that interview and i think back to the actual interview that we had and the discussion we had and the really really good discussion that we had off camera after we were done recording (laughs) and eventually we got to keep recording so that we can save that for the b-roll and for our (laughs) kind of secret sauce content a little bit more about that What came to my mind was the reality that Christians have done an awful job at using the noodle that God has given them to really think critically about all things, but specifically and ironically enough about Christian things, right? When Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is, he says all of the Old Testament hinges upon this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
And I have been of the personal conviction for a while now that of those four, if there's one by and large that Christians do a terrible job of, it's worshiping the Lord with their mind. The vast majority of the stuff that they are singing in churches is not mind engaging. It's just drony, repetitive, fluffy music. The books that they are reading are basically self-help books. The sort of content that they are consuming is just stupid entertainment. They're not actually stretching the, the minds that God has given them, and they're not thinking Christianly, and they're not worshiping the Lord with their minds, which means all things are to be considered intentionally, and we're supposed to use the mind and the intellect he's given us. What We're made in his image. God has a mind. God's intelligent. And so that interview just reinforced for me the, the, the necessity. We need to encourage our audience. Worship God with your mind, which means think deeply and Christianly about these things. Surround yourselves with people who ask intentional questions, who are going to press on you and really challenge what you believe. Start reading some good books. Where do I start? Just email us at info at libertycoalitioncanada.com. I got at least five books that you can start with that are not long books that are going to stretch that brain muscle and help you to worship the Lord better with your mind. And uh, and stop being like those lazy Christians that have just, they've thought that by punching their ticket into heaven, that's all they need to do. And they don't need to engage intellectually with their minds and with their reason on this earth. Uh, let's let's be better than that because God has made us and saved us to be better than that. And when we do that, I mean, just look at the last municipal election is a great example of when Christians actually step up and press in. Good stuff happens. I'm so thankful for Jerry's work. I really want to commend the book to you again. Please go out. The Maker versus the Taker. You can get it for a pretty low price on uh, Kindle on Amazon if you want to do that if you don't need the physical copy and it's it's a quick read but it is filled with insights and it's the sort of hard thinking the good thinking the the honoring Christ with our our minds the using good and necessary consequence of scripture to really unpack what is being taught therein um that is at the heart of what jerry does and that's what we're trying to do as a podcast here and try and think of how the bible speaks authoritatively authoritatively in all areas of life so we really appreciate you tuning in we were, hope you were blessed by the conversation we hope you were encouraged by the fact that when when Christians get involved in politics, we can see some fruit for the glory of God. So we hope all that encourages you. Thank you for tuning in. And until next time, Galatians 5.1. Thanks for tuning in to Liberty Dispatch, a united front to restore liberty and justice in Canada. Please subscribe to our podcast and Rumble channel, as well as visit our website at www.libertycoalitioncanada.com.